Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries, and I want to welcome you to our Sabbath teaching for this Sabbath. Uh, again, we're going through the Torah portions this year, showing that the Torah is for all people. And um, we are still in the book of Genesis, so two more portions left. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44. We are in the part of the story where Joseph is down in Egypt. The brothers have come down. They needed to buy grain. And the interchange that took place between Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph is operating off the premise of the first dream he had. The first dream he had was there were sheaves of grain. And that he saw his stood erect and all the others bowed down to him. And he understood that, and the brethren understood that to be that one day he would stand upright and the others would bow to him. Well, of course, they didn't like that idea, and so that's the reason why they hated Joseph, rejected him. Well, here we are. He's now the viceroy of Egypt, and a second only to Pharaoh, and there's a famine in the land, and they have to come and buy grain, you know, the product of the sheaves. And when they first approached, there was only 10 of them, but he remembered the dream. And the dream said that 11 would come and bow down before him. The missing brother was Benjamin, who had stayed back with Jacob, and the other brothers had come down. So in the course of their conversations, he said, uh, tell me about yourself. I think you're spies. And he said, no, we are all sons of one father, uh, Jacob, and we have another little brother, um, and so forth. And he said, well, the next time, you're not going to see me the next time if you don't bring your brother. And to help incentivize them to come, he took Simeon and he put him in prison. Of course, Simeon was the one who came up with the idea about killing Joseph. So there's a little poetic justice going on there. And the brothers were coming to terms with that God had found them out as to what they'd done with their brother and was punishing them. And so they returned and now um, they get told by the uh, father, we need more grain, go back down. And uh, Judah explained to Jacob again that we can't go down and we can't see him unless we take Benjamin with us. And in the course of the discussion, Judah offered himself as a surety for his brother Benjamin that he would definitely bring him back. Well, they go down into Egypt, as you remember from the last week's portion, and everything goes fine. You know, Simeon's released, Benjamin checks in, everything's going good. They buy all the grain they need and, and they get the grain and their money back in their sacks and they're leaving and, and the whole trip is a giant success and they're on their way back when suddenly they get stopped and accused of stealing uh, Joseph's uh, cup of divination. And they find the piece, the evidence of it, in Benjamin's sacks that he's bringing. And all of a sudden, they're all being hauled back, and they are in deep, deep trouble. Uh, it looks like that Benjamin is going to be in trouble. They think they're going to be in trouble, and, and all of these kinds of things. And when Joseph then announced, no, only Benjamin will be in trouble. And here's Judah now trying to make an appeal to Joseph about this whole matter. And so that's what brings us to the portion where we're at in Genesis 44 and verse 18. Now, the, I'm going to read the whole passage through. 
I want you to listen to it from the standpoint of Judah's heart and what Joseph is hearing. And you're going to find this to be a fascinating uh, uh, interchange here that takes place. Let me read for you now. Chapter 44, verse 18. Then Judah approached him, that's Joseph, and said, O my Lord, may your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. That's a reference to Joseph. So he alone is left with his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And the reason why he had called for that was that would prove they weren't spies uh, for it. But But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother youngest brother, come down with you, you should not see my face again, meaning you're not going to be able to buy anything further. Thus, it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord, and our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with, is, is with us. Then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to me, You know that my wife bore me two sons, that's Rachel. And one went out from me, that's a reference to Joseph. And I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him um, since. And if you take this one from me and harm befalls him, now you will bring my gray hair down to the grave in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will come about that when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol, the grave in sorrow." For your servant um, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servants remain instead of the lad um, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father. This appeal on the part of Judah before Joseph is considered in the scriptures uh, to be one of the most um, powerful uh, petitions that you could possibly um, say. And it is considered to be a highly impassioned uh, speech. Now, considering Judah is, as you recall, he's not the oldest of the brothers, but he has basically taken a position of leadership within the brothers, um, being the fourth born. And and he's the one that made himself to be a surety for Benjamin, not the others. And it was Judah who made the idea, let's sell Joseph, 
So he was responsible for it. And it was Judah who came back and told Jacob that Joseph was no more. Now, if you recount that story, they took his tunic and they tore it up. They took the, the blood of a, of a, a lamb and, uh, or a goat and they smeared it all over it, and then they took it back, and essentially uh, Judah then went to Joseph, and instead of, or excuse me, he went to Jacob, and instead of saying, hey, Joseph has been killed, uh, they said, do you recognize this? We found this. And immediately Jacob interpreted that as that a wild beast that attacked Joseph had torn him to pieces, probably eaten him, and carried him off, and there was no need to further send a search party out to look for him. They weren't going to find his remains. They weren't going to find his body because he'd probably been consumed by a wild beast. And that was part of the logic of why Judah and the brothers came up with that scheme, was they didn't want to go back there and immediately get dispatched to go on a search party you know, for him. They, they needed to know that... Um, uh, that he, it was going to be accepted by Jacob that Joseph was no more. Well, the reality is they knew he had been sold and then shipped off to Egypt, and they could care less what happened to him. Joseph probably had some different thoughts after he had been discarded by his brothers. He, he couldn't understand the, the contempt and the hatred that his own brethren were giving to him. When he went to Egypt and was enslaved, he probably was wondering, now what will my father do? I'm not going to show up. My father will surely come searching for me. And when Judah recounts the story and he says that he had been, that the older brother had been torn apart, he went, oh, that's the story they told him, that I had been eaten by a wild beast, that I, there, there was no more of me. And that's the reason why my father didn't searched for me and, and continued to look for me. So that it answered one of the questions for Joseph. Why didn't they come looking for me? Well, because the story that had been given. That's the reason why. Um, but in this particular thing, let's consider Judah is trying to stand in for Benjamin. He wants to get Benjamin released. He's willing to offer himself. So for the first time, Joseph is now seeing the brothers stand up for one another. He's seeing Judah stand up for Benjamin. And he had a lot of concern about that. Part of his reason why he asked for Benjamin to be brought was to make sure that the brothers hadn't done harm to Benjamin like they had done to him. Because Benjamin and Joseph were sons of the same mother. And he knew what the resentment was and the envying that was going on. So it was important for him to know his brother Benjamin was well. And when it came, then he now sees for the first time his brother standing up for his youngest brother, Benjamin. And that's a whole new thing. That's an indicator, if you will, that they have had a change of heart, that they have a change of behavior, and things are now moving in the right direction. But there's one other thing in this appeal that stands out far and above others. And that is, actually, Judah is pleading the case, not for Benjamin, not for himself. He's pleading the case for his father. In fact, mention of Jacob, my father, uh, his father, and so forth, 
in the, in the words that I read to you, 15 times, Judah inserts a reference to Jacob, his father. And it becomes very clear that Judah's real primary thing is, I don't want to see my father die if I don't bring Benjamin back to him, because he stated he will surely die of grief uh, from that, and it will take him down, it will kill him. And so here, he not only does he see Joseph see Judah standing up for a brother, but he sees them standing up for their father, that they, the love of their father, which is what Joseph shared with it. And so all of these emotions come together at this one moment of the love of Jacob, the love of the brethren, um, the, the, the willing to stand in for one another and help each other. So we get to chapter 45 and verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? Um, I can only imagine what that moment must have been like. I, I would imagine his brothers, well, in fact, what it says, his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. <sighs> They're standing before Joseph, like the dream said, they are bowing down to him and his sheaf is upright, theirs is bowed. And talk about role reversal. They had put him down and now he had all the power in the world to put them down. Um, and it was stunning um, in that moment. The thing that united them was the love of their father, Jacob. Uh, verse 3, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there is neither plowing or harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his household and ruler over all of the land of Egypt." Um, this is an excellent example of where a spiritual man, Joseph in this case, looks at what are considered to be the providence of life. This is how the chips fall uh, in his life. And he is recognizing, no, God put me in this situation and God has been orchestrating my steps. It is God's plan that I went through this. Now, we've talked about a couple of times about what is our destiny in the Lord, and we all have a destiny in the Lord. If the Lord knows us, He can see all the things before us, and He's, 
you know, he makes several promises. No, for example, he says, no good thing will I withhold from them that walk uprightly. If it's a good thing and it's, it's for you, he'll let you have it. But at the same time, he says, I walk with you. I, you know, I'm right there uh, with you no matter where you go. I don't leave you. I don't forsake you. And so we all know as we walk through our lives, regardless of what happens to us, that the Lord is still with us. The Lord doesn't abandon us. And Joseph came to terms with his rejection by his brethren, be, you know, being uh, sold, uh, put in prison, and finally coming out of prison to serve Pharaoh, that he looked back and he said, this is what God has been doing. God has been positioning me. And so here we come to the famine. God has positioned me in the right place so that God can give a great deliverance to Jacob and his family. And that God was using Joseph for that purpose. This is a messianic theme. Uh, the Messiah has been specifically dispatched from our Heavenly Father to us to preserve us and to provide for us a great deliverance. It's, it's the, the story of Joseph with his brothers. And just like Joseph, who was rejected by his brethren, thrown in a pit, so Yeshua was rejected by his own countrymen, was cast in a pit, but God raised him up. And there's a day coming when all of Israel and my Jewish brethren are going to be before the Messiah, Yeshua, and he's going to announce who he is to them, and they are going to be speechless. And, and Yeshua, the Messiah, is probably going to make the same speech that Joseph did, you don't realize this, but I was sent for the purpose to provide you salvation and deliverance, you know, in the world where you're at, in the midst of trials and tribulations. So it's an overarching, huge messianic theme that we are looking at here. Now, what follows is the decision is now made that, and Joseph is saying, I need uh, my father and all of the family, I need you to come to Egypt because there's food here and not where you're at. And rather than coming annually for it, you need to come and I will provide a place for you. I will provide some land for you to live, uh, bring the families and so forth. And in the course of what happens here, he sends a whole series of gifts uh, to Jacob, wagons filled with various things from Egypt to preserve them and make sure they have adequate before they come, and to compel Jacob to come down to Egypt to see Joseph and to dwell there. And that's what we have as this uh, in this chapter is Jacob making the decision to go down. And there's a couple of interesting things here that we should take note of, one of which is that there's an accounting of Jacob's family and who is it that actually went down to Egypt. And the scripture tells us that there were 70 people that went down to Egypt. Now that's not counting Jacob or the mothers. That's counting the offspring of Jacob that came down. And if you will, let me just, I'm going to summarize this for you. I'll show you exactly where it's at for it. And um, after he makes his appeal to come down to Egypt, then there's this accounting, and it says in verse 8, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. 
Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben. And he goes down through the whole listing. And there's a summary point in this. If you'll look at verse 15, these are the sons of Leah. Now, the sons of Leah were Reuben, and it was uh, Levi, and Simeon, and Judah. And so it gives an accounting for all of those. And for example, in verse 15, it says, These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paramaran with his daughter Dinah, and all his sons and his daughters numbered 33. So it gives a short of, of the 70 who went down to Egypt, 33 of them are a direct result of Jacob with Leah. Then it jumps a little bit further. And it says, um, it comes to um, verse 18. He said, now the sons of Zilpah, this is the handmaid that belonged, and she also bore sons. And if you'll read, let me read for you verse 18. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. And the names are given for them. Then verse 22 it comes down to these are the sons of Rachel, and there were 14 persons in all. And you go a little bit further, verse 25, these are the sons of Bilhah, and there were seven persons in all. And verse 26 says, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, there were 66 persons in all. So there's a subtotaling of those. And the, verse 27, And the sons of Joseph, which were born in Egypt, were two, all the persons of the house of Jacob, who came to Egypt were 70. Tilt. They don't total 70. You can go back and count it up for yourself. There's only 69 names and 69 persons have been given account of. But it says there were 70 persons who went down. Um, and it presents itself as a little bit of a mystery to us. In fact, Torah teachers say this is one of the hidden mysteries of the Torah. Who is the 70th person? Because 70 people did go down there. Let me go ahead and cut to the chase. When we get to the book of Exodus, I'll show you even more detail on this. In truth of fact, the day they arrived in Egypt, there were 69 that left the land, but there were 70 persons who arrived at Jacob. It was the birth of the mother of Moses. Now, Moses doesn't make a big deal out of this. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the scripture says of him, he was the humblest man in the world. He doesn't assert his own personal lineage and story because she giving birth to him and her being born in Egypt and giving children is a greater miracle than Sarah giving birth to Isaac with Abraham. It's, there's a miracle birth that takes place. And as we get into Exodus, you're going to find out that Yoshebel the mother of Moses, was a very, very old woman and still childbearing way after time. And in fact, she had to marry her nephew 
to be able to have a man who is virile enough to be able to provide children for her. And that is utterly fascinating as to how this is all taking place. So there were 70 who go down, but one of the names is not mentioned here in this Torah portion. It goes into the story of Exodus. In fact, the very first verses of Exodus says, now there were 70 persons who went down into Egypt. And, and, but there is a clue in here that it was the mother. And let me take you back to the clue that's given. Um, in verse 7, going back to chapter 46, and it says, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, all his descendants uh, were brought up. Granddaughters, plural. I, don't, I didn't see any listing of any granddaughters um, there. And if you go down here a little bit further into Leah's account, verse 15, all his sons and his daughters. Now, Dinah was a daughter. Who's the daughters? Who's the plural that goes with Dinah? So let me explain, and this is going to be kind of fascinating for you, but it goes back, the explanation goes even deeper. When Simeon and Levi slew the men of Shechem, and if you remember, the prince of Shechem had married Dinah, um, first raped her and then wanted to marry her, and her brothers, you know, went and slew them after they had gotten circumcised and they were weak. Well, since they had taken away her husband, and that was the way that she could have children that could preserve her and, and take care of her in her latter years, he was under obligation, and it fell to Levi. He was under obligation to father a child for Dinah. And if you remember in the Torah, there is a provision that if a brother dies before he has a child, his brother is supposed to raise up, you know, a son through his former wife, um, you know, so that she has sons named after him and so forth. This was the ancient way. And if Levi took Dinah's husband, killed him, then he's responsible to raise up a child for her so that she has. Well, the child she has is a daughter. Her, her name is Yoshebel, who turns out to be the mother of Moses. This is an utterly fascinating part of the Torah. And whenever I get people who get smug about they think they know the Torah, you know, better than other people, I'd love to take them to this passage and I'd say, count the names up. And there's only 69. Explain to me why the scripture, the Torah says there were 70. And most people have not studied that level of the Torah to understand the incredible miracle that was taking place here um, and how it transpired. Now, not to be outdone, and I'm not going to go into super detail, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, we move to the New Testament period, and we have Stephen, who is a disciple of the Lord, who's been arrested and in the course of his trial, he gives an impassioned speech about the history of Israel, about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his sons, and, and, and explains the history, trying to make the case for that Yeshua of Nazareth has come in fulfillment of all of those prophecies and is a continuation. In other words, he wanted to explain the theme of Joseph 
being rejected by his brothers, but being raised up, you know, to be a, a salvation and deliverance to them. He was trying to present Yeshua Messiah in that role, in that great messianic theme. And in the course of recounting this part of the story, he makes the following statement. He said there were 75 total persons in Jacob's family down in Egypt. What? As surely that's a mistake. It says 70. No, there's a slight difference this time in what Stephen's talking about. He's including Jacob and three mothers. Well, that's four. So I add those four to the um, 70. That comes up to 74. So here we are again. Who's the 75th person? And the answer to that is actually found back in the Torah portion again, and in which that um, when Jacob is told um, to, to come down to the land of Egypt, the Lord has a very interesting conversation with Jacob where the Lord calls out to Jacob in a dream and announces to him that he is to go down to the land of Egypt that he's to go down there and dwell there and that he's going to close his eyes and death down there and Joseph will bury him and that he's to go down. And he says, I will surely go with you down there. So the Lord is saying he would go down to Egypt. But it's not just, you know, God's omnipresence that would go down. There's a reference to the Messiah would go down with him. The Messiah is the one who would then be delivering them and bringing them up out of Egypt. And Matthew in his gospel may, explains to us that when Yeshua came up out of Egypt in his birth, along with Joseph and Mary, that they quote the verse, my son shall come up out of Egypt, which was in Hosea chapter 11, is a direct reference to the Egyptian exodus. That is saying that in the Egyptian exodus, the Son of God, the Messiah, came up out of Egypt with them, which means he had to have been there to begin with. Now, this is going to kick you a little bit. The Messiah is part of the family of the house of Jacob. I mean, he's eternal, but he's part of the family of Jacob. So who's the 75th person who's the family of Jacob? The Messiah. The Messiah went down there. And the reason why he makes that point, Stephen makes that point, is trying to show how the Messiah has been involved in this whole thing about delivering his people. And when Stephen's making his defense of the faith, He's explaining the things the Messiah has been doing to begin with, the Messiah is still doing through Yeshua of Nazareth, and trying to get the people to understand. It's a very fascinating uh, part of Scripture to understand and pull all of these uh, people together for it. All right, now with that said, um, the, the, the family of Jacob goes down into Egypt, and it basically explain, it explains to us what transpired in the remaining five years 
of the famine. If you remember, Joseph said two years of the famine have done. Well, what happened in the other five years? Well, we get the explanation for us in chapter 47. In chapter 47, uh, it goes through and explains the dynamic of what happened to everybody that was in Egypt. On one of the years where they had to, they, it took all of their money to buy food. So all the Egyptians and everybody spent all their money to buy food that year. Well, they didn't have any more money, and the next year, they then traded their livestock. Verse 16, give up your livestock. So they gave your livestock. And then, after the livestock were given, so verse 20, so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt. They owned individual farms and land, and they sold their land. They sold, um, they gave their money, they gave their livestock, sold their land, and in the last year, they made themselves slaves to Pharaoh. They sold themselves. And it was at that point that then Pharaoh said, I want all the people to come into the cities. Don't be scattered out. I want you to come in the cities. And then basically after the famine was over with, Pharaoh then apportioned out grain for them to go back in the fields and grow. And one-fifth of what they grew had to come back to Pharaoh and they got four-fifths of the produce of the field for them to live. And it was possible at that point to be able to buy some land back. And in fact, this is exactly what the children of Israel did. When they came down into the land of Goshen, into part of Egypt, they purchased land from Pharaoh for them to dwell and be able to do what it is that they wanted to do while they were there, living there. And they acquired property in it. The scripture says in verse 27, Israel acquired property in Egypt, you know, from this. Now, I want you to take note of the process taking place here. Egypt is a free people. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't lord it over them other than being at the top government position for the defense of the nation. But there's individuals there that have money and proceeds and they own things and so forth. But in the course of this event, they lost it all. They basically lost all their possessions. And they became the first, if you will, truly socialist government. Pharaoh, the government, took care of the needs of the people. And the people had nothing. And you know how they described it? They were enslaved they were slaves to Pharaoh. And anybody that was buying land and doing something, why Pharaoh wanted it under that control. So when another Pharaoh comes along and all the people are enslaved to him, that's the way he wants to keep it. That, that's the way he feels uh, best about it. Of course, you're incentivizing the people to rebel if you do that too much. And this is the dynamics. Now, I want to fast forward to today. I've heard a lot of people talk about the end-time Bible prophecy, about uh, the Antichrist one-world government um, and the things like that, and how he's going to do harm to all of the people. May I suggest to you that the pattern is even simpler than that. All we have to do is have the existing governments of the world uh, to essentially go through this process of enslaving their own citizens, the control of their money, to control the ability to earn money, 
to own all of the land, to make the people slaves to them. You can't do anything without the government's permission. And all that the Antichrist does is serve like another pharaoh. But the whole governmental system, what some people call the beast system, I'm here to tell you right now, it can be set up so simple. Like, for example, let's have a pandemic. Let's scare the heck out of everybody. You know, they had a famine. We got a pandemic. Let's scare everybody and let's get it to where that we can control the money. Let's get it to where we control your ability to have a job. Let's control the ability for you to own property. And once all of that is under the control of the government, then guess what you have left? You can now enslave, you're enslaved to that government system. God's people were not enslaved to Pharaoh. They were independent landowners. They had their own system for controlling them and setting them up. They were autonomous within it. When the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt, they were brought out from under the oppression of Pharaoh and his system of government. And God said, no, I'm going to take you out and I'm going to make you a nation of laws and rules, and you will be a free people, and I will give you land for you to live in. You won't be, you know, dealing with the land that uh, Egypt owns and things like that. I will remove you from your enemies and separate you from them. Um, this is a, 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 an extremely an important point for um, our future. When we talk about our lesson, Taurus, for everyone, let me just men make mention of this right now with you all. See, I'm one of those guys that believes the Torah is more than just applicable to everybody. I believe the Torah was given to our benefit. It was given to Moses and the children of Israel and to their descendants, and I consider you and I to be descendants, just like I consider us to be the descendants of Abraham. Abraham was given certain promises that God would be his God and to the promises would go to his descendants. We are the descendants of Abraham. We are the descendants of Israel. The Torah was given to us just like the heritage of Abraham was given to us. All the promises belong to us. All the covenants belong to us. Everything that God's been doing with God's people, it belongs to us today. Well, let me tell you what also belongs to us. The promises of deliverance. And God has, in demonstrating here, how he sets the stage for certain things, and then he's able to deliver his people out of the difficulty you're in. You and I are living at the end of the ages. We're living in these years here, and we have been, like in my case, I've been watching for 70 years. You know, the world go on, and the world has definitely made a transition in my lifetime. And we are now to the days where it's alarming and people are being fearful and concerned. That's what happened to the children of Israel in Egypt. When they first got started, it was great. Everything was working out fine. They were all being taken care of. But then this new Pharaoh showed up, and all of a sudden he doesn't remember what Joseph had done and how things were set up to begin with. We move away from what was the original agreements, and suddenly Pharaoh starts dictating what the, what the agreement is going to be. And we 
in this world today, the same thing's happening to us. Our government in the United States of America and other nations, government leaders are getting the idea that they're like Pharaoh. You've got to come to us for what you need. We'll control it, and you've got to come to us, and essentially we will be benevolent, but we're going to have you enslaved to us. Socialism is a governmental system that enslaves the people to the government. Communism does the same thing. Democracy is kind of the opposite of that. Theocracy, the government of God, is, op is uh, opposite of that. And given the situation that we're in right now, you can see the atmosphere building for other future prophecies, many of which you have maybe have heard me speak of before, but I refer to as the greater exodus. The prophecy says at the end of the ages that God is going to once again bring up his people from all of the nations of the world, put them on a journey to the promised land and to the kingdom. And he's reminding them that the land is for you and I will be king over you and we have this responsibility for it. I've given you commandments to follow. You're a free people if you obey the law uh, and, and you don't have to stay a slave and where you're at. And the prophecies go on to say that this is an event that happens with the last generation of the ages. Many other places talk about this. But I want you to understand in this Torah portion that we're seeing essentially the foundation of how enslavement takes place. Uh, it started off as a great idea. Let's solve the problem on the famine. But then when it came to implementation, Joseph set it up so it was to the benefit of Pharaoh. And by the way, that was done intentionally by God so that he could set the stage to deliver his people up out of uh, Egypt. Not 70 persons, but a whole nation of persons would be coming out in the four generations that followed. So... We can see how God's been orchestrating things back then. We should look about us and see how God is orchestrating things for us. Those that are spiritually minded will see it. Those that understand the promises of God and how God works and his plan with men, they'll see it. But we live in a time, like in the days of back then, where it seems like none of this has ever happened before. And as I uh, speak to various assemblies, especially a lot of Christians, they have no concept of that God's got another exodus planned for all of us to go to the promised land. Instead, they're looking for the quick fix. They're looking for a handout. Only the government is selling quick fixes and handouts. And it, they're, they're not going to follow through. They're not going to treat the people well. They're going to end up oppressing the people. And I believe that we are definitely on the early stages of that oppression right now. Consider with me the following things. They've taken away your free speech. Twitter and Facebook censor you. They've taken away your right to assemble. Governors are saying, no, you cannot assemble more than 10 of you 
at a time. You can't have Christmas dinner, Thanksgiving together. You can't have church services, you know. And yet at the same time, we see the hypocrisy. Oh, that doesn't stop other things that they want from happening. So essentially what you're doing is you're getting the signal that they get to do what they want to do and you have to do what they want you to do. Well, that's enslavement. You have a master and you have a slave. It's not fair. It's never intended to be fair. It's a dependent, intended to be a control game. God does not want his people to be under the control of any other god or any other uh, man or nation. God's people are to be free to be able to be his people before him, to be his possession. This is what the overarching story of the scripture is. This is about our own relationship with God, not only corporately, but personally. This is what God, he's trying to get you free from sins. He's trying to get you free from things that enslave you. And by the way, sin enslaves you. So he's giving you salvation and deliverance from all of those kinds of things. That's the overarching thing that God has been doing with his people all along. So it brings us to where we're at today. As we're going through the Torah portions this, this year, we should always be mindful to look about us and see if we can see the elements of the principles and the truths that are in the Torah and how they're playing out in our life. One of the concepts I try to teach when I do teach Torah is I call it living Torah, that these are living words and there will be things that will be in your life each week and that the Sabbath portion will somehow speak to those things if you're listening. And this is certainly one that speaks loudly to the world that we are in this year and how things are concluding for this year. It's very important for us to continue to learn the Torah, its principles, its hints, its prophecies, and so that we can understand what is our role and how do we fit into this whole great big story uh, that God is doing so that we can see God's deliverance and salvation and that we can be a part of his great plan. Many of us are actually in the role of Joseph in this world. God is going to use us to help deliver a whole bunch of people, which is the family of Jacob. And so that will be preserved and kept and be able to make it to the promised land. So with those thoughts, uh, I leave you on this Sabbath, and I pray that you will continue to grow in the Torah and come to terms with who you really are. You're one of the descendants of Abraham. You're one of the house of Jacob. You belong to the Messiah King. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.